Acts chapter 7, verses 44 to 60. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directing him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by men or made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is this place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at them. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him together. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can look at it, that we can be challenged by it, that we can be encouraged by it, that we can be strengthened by it in our faith. Lord, I pray that we would see the glory of Jesus in this passage tonight. Lord, that we would be challenged in our faith this week to be forgiving as Stephen was, to be forgiving as Christ was. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever been accused, maybe falsely accused, uh, or just accused by by maybe a parent or a coworker or a boss or a spouse or a friend, uh, when you've been accused by someone, it especially when you're when you know that you are not in the wrong, it can make you feel very offended that someone has has said, you know, hey, you did this and has held you accountable for it to some degree. Um, you you feel that that offense because you know your innocence is there. What if you were accused and convicted? of something you didn't do. The fact is, it happens more often than, than we think. There's actually a national registry, what's called a national registry of exonerations um, done by the University of Michigan and, and I think uh, University of Virginia. And it's, you, it's maintained online. You can search it. They've got 1,200 stories of individuals who are falsely charged for crimes and have since come out that they uh, have been exonerated or set set free from charges that they, they have held. They've been held under for years, um, either in jail or uh, or in other circumstances. And so, uh, I was checking out that that uh, registry, thinking about this this question of of being accused falsely for something, and 
um, and found the oldest one listed on their on their website. It was a man named Daryl Parker. Um, the Natural Registry talks about Daryl Parker, who uh, who was 24, I believe, at the time. He came home from work in Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska, and discovered his wife dead at at, at his house. And he, um, you know, cooperated with the with the police, told them, you know, called them immediately, and she was taken and pronounced dead. Um, and he then soon after, as he was attending her memorial in, in Des Moines, Iowa, was accused of murdering his wife at, at the age of 24. He ended up being convicted almost entirely on his confession. Uh, they At that time, they were using a technique that I, I guess is very controversial. It's called the Reed Technique, and it's very successful at drawing out confessions from individuals. And uh, even when they were were not the one that did it. And so he was, uh, this method was used against him and, and he recanted this confession, but, but it was too late. He had, he had somehow pictured himself there and somehow confessed to this crime. So he spent 13 years in prison from the age of 24 to 37. I can't imagine being in prison for those years, 24 to 37. And at that point, he, uh, he earned parole, and, and for 22 years he was on parole. But uh, later, uh, a man came forward who, uh, or a man was found who uh, had, had committed 13 different murders in the area. And one of the murders he confessed to was this murder of, of Daryl Parker's wife. Daryl Parker had been, had been held for 13 years in prison, falsely accused of this, this murder of, of his own wife. And for 22 years was held on parole, had that stigma of, of this, uh, this charge against him, even though he knew he had not done anything wrong at all. Came out that uh, he, was, uh, he, gave a, he had given a false confession and that uh, there had been misconduct among those who were investigating the case as they found uh, mounting evidence against this man that wasn't released at the time of, uh, of Daryl Parker's trial. Could you imagine being uh, accused of such a thing as, as, as murder and, and convicted and, and then for years, almost your entire life, live with that, that uh, not only the punishment but also the stigma after your name was cleared? Well, today we're looking at a man who, who was indeed falsely accused in a similar manner. We're looking at Stephen and we're looking at his response to being falsely accused you see, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at how Stephen responded to his accusers. In chapter 6, verse uh, 11 to 14, we find the, the things that are accused, that Stephen is accused of. It starts in verse 11 of chapter 6 in Acts. Then they secretly instigated men. They brought up men to falsely testify against Stephen, who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Stephen was falsely accused of, of blaspheming the one true God. We see him falsely accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. We see him being accused that 
he speaks against the holy place, the temple. We see him accused of speaking against the law. We see him accused of claiming that Christ would uh, destroy the temple and being accused of saying that Christ would change the customs that Moses delivered to the people. The interesting thing is that we see Stephen respond to this in, in a wise manner. He responds by uh, refuting all of these claims very clearly, as we've seen over the past few weeks. The first accusation, again, was that he speaks blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Contrary to this accusation, Stephen honors the writings of Moses, honors the history that Moses had handed down. He honors Abraham. He honors Joseph. He honors Moses. We see, we've seen that over the past few weeks as he, he gave promise. He, he testifies to God's presence being with these patriarchs. He says of Abraham that the God of glory appeared to Abraham that the God of glory gave Abraham promises for which to stand on, for which his people stood on. We see him speak again honorably of uh, Joseph as well. We see that he says God was with Joseph in in his significant trials throughout Egypt and and other places. When Joseph's uh, brothers were, were selling him into slavery, God was with Joseph. We see Stephen honoring the life of Joseph this patriarch. We see him honoring the life of Moses, saying that Moses was with the presence of God at the burning bush in Midian, that that God was with Moses as he led the people out of Egypt. Stephen does not speak blasphemous words against Moses and his life. He, in fact, honors the tradition of the patriarchs and God's presence with them. The second accusation we see against Stephen have seen against Stephen is that he never ceases to speak against this holy place is the accusation they levied. But Stephen in this passage tonight gives us uh, in the conclusion of his his response to his accusers gives us a, a very clear picture of what the temple was always supposed to represent, a very clear perspective of what the temple really meant. He doesn't speak against it, he speaks in honor of it and its purpose for the people of God. Let's look at that briefly as we look at these accusations against Stephen. Verse 44 to 47 said this, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, uh, who spoke to Moses, directed him to make it, uh, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that drove out uh, that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. You see, something very key in that passage was uh, what, what the tent of witness as well as the temple was intended to be. God spoke to Moses and directed him to make the tent of witness, the tabernacle, the temple, after a pattern that he had seen. See, the, the temple and, and the tent of witness um, are simply a pattern of something that is real. Yes, they were certainly physical. You know, the, the tabernacle was with the people of God as they journeyed through the Exodus and 
they brought it into the land of Israel. And, um, and again, David made it into a permanent structure that we, what we call the temple. But the temple was uh, simply a pattern of the real temple that exists in heaven. See, God handed down a pattern to Moses that he might understand, that the people might understand who better who God is. It was simply a pattern to reflect the glory of God. The temple pattern shows God's sovereignty over both heaven and earth. The temple is the temple and the tabernacle were made of three piece three major components. First, the court that surrounds the, the main structure. It's very earthy and represents actual you know, God's presence over all the earth. God as creator over all earth. The second component is the holy place, and in the holy place we see it representing the, the, the visible heavens, the, the sun and the moon, the light provided by God. We see that God is sovereign over the heavenlies. And finally, we see the, the inner place, the holy of holies, as representative of heaven itself, where the altar of God is and where God's presence resides. See, the temple isn't some structure that, that holds in God's presence, but rather is a picture of God's interaction with our world, interaction with his people. It's a pattern given to Moses, not the house of, of the Lord's presence, not the only place where God resides. You see, 48 and, uh, verses 48 and 50 make this clear to us. He goes on to say, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. He does not dwell in the tabernacle alone. He does not dwell in the temple alone. He doesn't dwell in certain churches alone. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. No, as the prophet says, Isaiah records this of of God's house, of where he resides. It says, Heaven is my throne. And earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God is creator of all things. And how, how could he possibly be confined to one single space? Stephen's response to this claim that he speaks against the temple is one of wisdom. It says, listen, the temple is not to be the only house of God's presence. We've seen in the life of Abraham that God was with him in Ur, in the life of Joseph that God was with him in Egypt, in the life of Moses that God was with him in Midian. God's presence is not confined to a house made by men. No, the the house, the temple, the tabernacle was simply a pattern given to Moses to represent God's holiness, his, his righteousness, his authority over earth and over heaven. So Stephen doesn't speak blasphemy against Moses or God or, or, or speak against the temple. Stephen also doesn't speak against the law as he's been accused of. In fact, he has a very high view of the law. We see Stephen referencing the law as living oracles in verse 38 of his response. We also see him referring to the law as being handed down by angels. Stephen doesn't speak against the law. He rather honors the law. He recognizes that it was given down for a very specific purpose to show us the the need for our purity, 
the, to show us the, the, the truth of our sin. To show us the way that we have fallen, each and every one of us. He doesn't speak against the law. He speaks with a high view of it. The next accusation that was levied against Stephen was that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy the temple. This uh, was recorded in John 2, verses 19 to 22. Jesus is speaking of the temple and and um, he was clearly misunderstood. Verses 19 to 22, Jesus answered them, the, the Jewish leaders, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? As they're still thinking that he's speaking of a physical place. But he was speaking, it goes on in verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. Christ said that he would destroy the temple of his body. He never said that he would destroy the physical temple itself. He had no reason or cause to do so. Christ, as he was speaking of the temple, was saying that he was going to give up his very life, the temple of himself. He was going to destroy it on our behalf. So we see Stephen presenting this case. Jesus was not going to destroy the temple. The last accusation that's given against Stephen was that he will change the customs Moses delivered to us, that Jesus of Nazareth was going to change the customs of Moses. And the fact is that um, the customs aren't unchanged. And we see this in uh, in in Stephen's speech. We see that God is to be seen as holy and that we are not holy. And we see simply that salvation is from God alone. The custom has not changed. The, the facts, the main custom has remained the same. We worship God as holy. We recognize that we are not. We recognize that salvation is from God alone. They weren't changing the customs. They were seeing fulfillment of the customs in Christ Jesus, as we'll see more clearly as we look at the rest of this passage. So these accusations were levied against Stephen, and, and what we see through what we've seen throughout his speech is that he presents the God of glory in a uh, in its in his true light. We see him testifying that, that God's presence was not limited to just a simple place or to just a, a certain people. But God's presence is all throughout the earth, and the earth speaks of His majesty. We see that the temple was not just the only place where uh, men were to worship God, but rather it was a pattern, a, a, a picture of the real temple in heaven. Important, yes. Vital to our understanding of God, yes. There's so much to be to be gleaned from the the temple itself and its its structure but it's simply a pattern. God is not held by a house alone. He's the creator of all things. He cannot be contained in one location. So to this point, we see that Stephen has no major difference with the leaders up until this point. But that's about to change as we look at the rest of this account. 
Let's reread verses 51 to 53. After he has uh, presented his case about about God's presence with the patriarchs and and about the importance of the temple, the, the importance of the temple, he says this to them. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen has gone from answering his accusers, testifying to what what he is saying clearly in his speech, to accusing his accusers. Up until this point, he has joined with them and said, our fathers, as he spoke of Moses and, and others. And now he is separating from them, saying, but your fathers are the ones who persecuted the prophets. You are stiff-necked. You are uncircumcised in heart. You resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen is clearly putting forth the case that the Christ has is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, of all the, the history of Israel. He's the promise that was given to Abraham. He's the salvation that was shown to Joseph. He's the very presence of God that Moses experienced. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. But Stephen says to them that you're blinded by the status quo. He first calls them stiff-necked people, saying that they always are resisting change. He next tells them that they're uncircumcised of heart. While they were very concerned with their purity, which the, the covenant of circumcision represents, they did not take that purity to heart. They were, they were rather uh, wicked in heart. Next he says that you always resist the Holy Spirit. You resist the, the move of God and what He wants to do. He says, as your fathers did, you do. See, Jewish tradition of uh, the, the fall of, of Jeremiah as well as Isaiah indicates that Jeremiah was stoned to death. Jeremiah, a prophet who spoke clearly of uh, a new covenant to come. The Israelites wouldn't have any of it. They stoned Jeremiah to death. Isaiah, in a similar way, proclaims the glory of the Lord and the salvation that comes through him and him alone. And he was sawed in two as death. Stephen saying that your fathers are the ones that killed the prophets who proclaimed the coming of the righteous one. And this is where Stephen diverges from them clearly. He says, though they killed the one that that prophesied of the righteous one, you have now betrayed and murdered this righteous one, Jesus. Stephen is proclaiming that Jesus is the righteous one that the prophets proclaimed. And he's saying again very clearly that you are the ones that have killed Christ. At this point, Stephen clearly diverges from 
from the leaders here. Up until this point, he's been speaking just of their history, just of the shared history that they have of the patriarchs and God's presence with them, of the importance of the temple, of the importance of the law. But at this point, he is saying that Christ is the fulfillment of all these things, and you are the ones that have murdered him and betrayed him. He goes further and says that you were the ones who received the law, the law that was given by angels, and you did not keep it. And at this, they, they heard these things and they were enraged. They ground their teeth at them. They grit their teeth at them, at, at Stephen. Stephen has, has answered their accusations and now he's presented an accusation unto them. And what happens next is a major shift in Acts, and it's a major challenge to us and to our faith. It's very important that we see this challenge, that we understand the, the forgiveness that we are called to extend to those around us. See, in, the, in these closing verses, we see that Stephen forgives his executors for what's about to happen. Let's read on verses 55 uh, to 60. It says this. After they heard these things, they're enraged and they ground their teeth at him in 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So here's Stephen surrounded by these leaders who've been accusing him and he has now presented an accusation to them And they're standing around looking at him. And he sees up in heaven, as he looks up, he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. And in verse 56, he testifies to this fact. He testifies to what he has seen. Verse 56, it says, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they are livid. Because what what Stephen is claiming here, is that he sees Jesus, the one they killed, in heaven at the right hand of God. So in verse 57, we see that they they cry out, they scream at the top of their lungs in a loud voice, so as to not hear any more words that Stephen is saying. They stop their ears up with their fingers so they can't hear, to help them not hear the things that Stephen is saying. And they rush at Stephen, they run at him. See, what Stephen believes has diverged very clearly from what they believe. They did not believe Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises of God and the fulfillment of the law. They believed he was a blasphemous man, deserving of death and punishment and crucifixion. But Stephen is saying that this man you killed, that you murdered, that you put on the cross and died, he is the righteous one and he is standing at the right hand of God. So again, they stop their ears up, they scream as loud as they can, and they rush at Stephen. They cast him out of the city, and they stone him. And what happens next is nothing short of amazing. We we are incredibly challenged by what what Stephen says. In verse 59, it says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, 
Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. Stephen has presented his beliefs to these leaders. He has said, listen, Christ is standing at the right hand of God. The one you murdered is is Lord. He is the righteous one. And for saying these things, Stephen is cast out of the city and stoned unto death. He's been falsely accused and now he's being convicted for blasphemy. And what is his attitude toward his accusers? Rather than condemning them for this act, he cries out to the Lord for forgiveness on their behalf. He extends forgiveness to those who are throwing stones and rocks at his body to kill him. He cries forgiveness for these because he says, as Jesus said of those who killed him, they do not understand what they are doing. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How in the world does Stephen forgive his accusers who are stoning him to death? How, after he's been falsely accused of of doing these things, how, after he's presented his beliefs before them and been stoned to death, does he extend forgiveness to these individuals? Can you imagine being surrounded by men that you have honored and respected over the years as you grew up in life, and, and there they are throwing rocks at you outside of your city to execute you unto death. And your words to them are, your words to the Lord in prayer are not about yourself, but rather, therefore, the forgiveness of those who are throwing the stones at you. Can you imagine having, being able to extend such grace? How does Stephen extend such grace to these accusers? Simply because of this. Because Stephen knows how much he has been forgiven. You see, God came in Christ Jesus to forgive us of our sins. The Bible says that there is none righteous, not even one. There are none who seek God. It says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. It says that the wages of that sin is death for us. Complete separation from God is the wages of our sin. We are all fallen in a need of grace. And Stephen knows that to the core. He knows that so much that he's able to extend that love to those that are throwing rocks at his face. Stephen's able to forgive his accusers who are murdering him because Christ has forgiven him of his sin. He knows how significant that is. We're called to this same truth, to forgive those who would accuse us, to forgive those who come against us. You see, Stephen didn't receive justice in his life. He was falsely accused and he was put to death, yet he prayed for forgiveness for those who accused him. We have to respond to Jesus in the same way that Stephen did. Jesus came to give his life on a cross 
that we might be restored to God the Father, that the wages of our sin would be, be washed away, that we find righteousness in God through Jesus Christ. So our call tonight is to be forgiven, to place our faith in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus alone for our salvation. That's the first call to us. The second thing is to reflect the grace that Christ extended unto us. If we reflect Jesus, we will be willing to forgive just as Jesus did, just as Stephen did. So the call to us tonight is to be forgiven, to place our faith in Christ for salvation. And the second is like it, to forgive as we have been forgiven. For we know the depths of our sin. We know how much we have been forgiven in Christ Jesus of. And so now we extend that to those who accuse us. Falsely or not, we extend forgiveness to our accusers in the same way Stephen did. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace upon us. We recognize that we are sinners in dire need of a Savior. Lord, so often we hold grudges and hold unforgiveness in our hearts toward other individuals. We do so within our families. We do so within our friends. We do so within the church. We do so in our workplace. Lord, we hold bitterness and unforgiveness toward our fellow man. Lord God, I pray that we would follow the steps of Stephen, that we would recognize how much we've been forgiven. That we would extend that same forgiveness to those around us. Lord, you're so merciful to us. We, we pray that you would empower us to share that same mercy with those that you've placed around us. God, again, we thank you for this time you've given us to come and enjoy together, to lift up your name, to lift up your grace over this city. God, we pray that more would come and experience the forgiveness that is found in Christ Jesus alone. Lord, the people would be freed from their bitterness and unforgiveness by the blood of Jesus. Lord, the people would be freed from their own sin by the blood of Christ. Lord, that is our prayer for clear water. Come, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.